Well, good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've had a, a, a really, I think, a really cool and amazing service so far, celebrating Pentecost and the birthday of the church. And um, I love the decorations. Thank you to uh, Julia and all those that helped with the, the decorations here in church and the children who brought in the, uh, the different fabric or the confetti, if you will. Um, and we've had folks to join, and it's just been a really cool celebration. What a, what a great day. What a great way to celebrate Pentecost. And so uh, we're going to look at the traditional scripture from Pentecost. It comes, it's Acts chapter 2. Um, I would encourage you to read along with me. Uh, you can find it in your pew Bible. I'm on page 111 of the New Testament section in your pew Bible. So we're going to read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And this describes the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, and Arabs, in our own languages we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues, as of fire, appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem, and at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, they're filled with new wine. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. 
I want to thank everybody for um, helping out with the scriptures today. I think we had Spanish, French, German, Chinese, and American Sign Language. So that was uh, really cool. Thank you all for helping out with the scriptures. Let's go to God in prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, send your spirit to speak our language, to speak to us in our very hearts. Lord, to empower us to speak your word to this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Fred Craddock was a well-known author and preacher who died a few years back. But, uh, he used to tell a rather funny story about uh, making a speech one time. He was at a seminary. And just before his first lecture, one of the students stood up and said, before you speak, I need to know, are you Pentecostal? He said he looked around like, what? And uh, looked for the dean of the seminary. He was nowhere to be found. And uh, so the student continued with his quiz right in front of all the other students. Craddock was taken back, and he said, do you mean do I go to a Pentecostal church? And the student said, no, I'm asking you, are you Pentecostal? Craddock said, are you asking me, am I charismatic? Craddock, uh, the student said, no, I'm asking you, are you Pentecostal? He said, are you asking if I speak in tongues? He said, no, I'm asking you if you're Pentecostal. Craddock finally said, I don't know what your question is. And the student said, then you're obviously not Pentecostal. <laughs> what are we talking about this morning? Is the church supposed to use the word Pentecost only as a noun, or can it be used as an adjective? And so what about you? Are you Pentecostal? In spite of the fact that the church doesn't seem to know how to use this word, the church insists that the word remain in our vocabulary as an adjective. The church is unwilling for the word to only be a noun, representing a date, a place, an event in the past recesses of time. It refuses for it to simply be a memory, an item, something that happened way back when. The church insists that the word is an adjective, describing the church today. The word, therefore, is Pentecostal, and it's not meant to be a scary word. If the church is alive in the world, it is Pentecostal. And you thought we were all Methodists, right? But speaking of other denominations, some time ago I read this statement from Dr. Jerry Vines, the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and I've, I've never forgotten it. It said that the average Christian and the average church are somewhere bogged down between Calvary and Pentecost. They've been to Calvary for pardon, but they haven't been to Pentecost for power. Hmm. He says Bethlehem means God with us, and Calvary means God for us, but Pentecost means God in us. Dr. Vine says, those statements transformed my understanding of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, I believe that the average Christian is very much like the Ephesians that Paul talks to in Acts chapter 19 when he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you first believed? And they said to him, we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. Christians do not understand the role of the Holy Spirit. And we've not appropriated the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So if it's important, and we say that it is, how do we keep this spirit moving? What must exist in us and around us and through us to be Pentecostal people? Well, I would say simply these three things. Number one, we are to be in one accord. And no, I don't mean a Honda. 
when the day of Pentecost, I was supposed to be funny, nobody laughed. Yeah, anyway, what, you've heard it before, that's right. When, when the day of Pentecost came, we learned that the apostles were all together in one accord, in one place. It was the day that Christ had promised for quite a while. Beginning with Easter, the resurrected Christ had appeared to the disciples in many different places. They knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was indeed the living Lord. And now he descended to the Father, and they waited in expectation for the, well, unexpected. I mean, how could they possibly known that the third person of the Trinity was about to descend upon them? The result was going to be the beginning of the church universal, which is why we celebrate it as the birthday of the church today. It is the primal fact in church history. The disciples received God's power in that moment in a way they'd never received it before. They received gifts to allow them to do things that they'd never been able to do before. This power and these gifts came on a day when they were in one accord, at least according to the King James Version. In other words, they were in unity and agreement. There was a commonality among them. Now, that didn't mean they were all the same or that they even thought the same on all things. Remember, there's a tax collector who's working for the Romans, and there's a zealot who wants to overthrow the Romans among the first 12 disciples. These people are political opposites, okay? And yet, they shared all things in common. Now, it's important to note it wouldn't last like that forever. A major split would occur later about who should be led into the church. You can read all about that in Acts 15. But it's said um, by some that maybe Peter and Paul came out fighting in, in Acts and really the church hasn't stopped fighting since. But at the beginning, in the early days, they were all in one accord. And it was to that setting that the Holy Spirit came. You know, sometimes people love their ideas more than they love their Jesus. And sometimes these ideas threaten to separate us, like it's doing with the United Methodist Church today. But nothing takes the place of real Christian community. I think that's why we have so many people wanting to join today, because we see that. And if we expect great things to happen, then we've got to be of one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one accord. The miracle of Pentecost was that people all over the world who spoke different language could hear the word of God in their own language, meaning that divided people were able to come together and share something in common. Well, second, and for this day, for this one, I got to go back into chapter one. We're told that in order to be Pentecostal people, that we have to join together in prayer. That's what the early disciples were doing. They were joined together in prayer in the upper room. You know where the church is growing the fastest nowadays around the world? It's not the United States. It's in places like South Korea and Africa and Latin America. For some years now, there have been massive revivals in these faraway countries. You ask the Methodist ministers in Sierra Leone where we're building that hospital, and they will tell you that the cornerstone of the revival is prayer. And while it's true that churches that are together in one accord can accomplish a lot, no church can be truly Pentecostal if it's not a praying church. It seems that much of the church today has turned into, um, well, just kind of Sunday morning Christians instead of Christians who invoke 
the Holy Spirit through prayer all week long. We've lost our desire to dedicate ourselves to personal prayer throughout the week. And that desire to expect the Holy Spirit to do something that would actually change our lives. A poem by an unknown author speaks about this, and I love this. It says, I got up early one morning and rushed right into my day. Had so much to accomplish, I didn't take time to pray. People just stumbled, excuse me, problems just tumbled about me and heavier became each task. Why doesn't God help me, I wondered. He answered, you didn't ask. I wanted to see joy and beauty, but the day toiled on gray and bleak. I wondered why God didn't show me. He said, but you didn't seek. I tried to come into God's presence. I used all my keys at the lock. God gently and lovingly chided, my child, you didn't knock. I woke up early this morning and paused before entering the day. I had so much to accomplish, I had to take time to pray. Too many people are trying to do it alone. Too many churches are trying to go it alone. They act as that the only thing that can occur within prayer is the psychological change that happens within a person. But prayer means being involved with God and God's work in the world. So if we are to come into God's presence, then we must ask, seek, knock. We have a need to pray in order to order our lives. But there's another reason, and I think it's an even greater reason. And for this, I want to read to you what the president said about our nation. He said, we've been the recipients of the greatest blessings of heaven. We've been preserved in peace and prosperity. We've grown in numbers, wealth, and power like no other nation has ever grown. But we've forgotten God. We've forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we've become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. We should be moved then to humble ourselves before God, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. The president said this back on April 30th of 1863. It was President Lincoln who spoke those words when he was trying to invoke a national day of prayer in the midst of the Civil War. Now, that bloody war ended 154 years ago, but our need for prayer hasn't changed. Nations, churches, families, individual people stand in need of prayer, prayer for guidance, prayer for direction, prayer for deliverance, prayer to shape us into people of integrity, prayer to God to forgive us of our sins, which brings us to our last point. If we are to be a Pentecostal church, we need to repent. If there's a moral crisis in the life of a person, he must repent. If there's a moral crisis in the event of a nation, it must repent. If there's a moral crisis in the life of the church, she must repent. Pentecost is possible only where sin is adequately dealt with. Peter, the church's first leader after Jesus ascended to heaven, he understood this. In the very first sermon that he ever preached, it was right after that scripture that we just read, he reminds the people he's speaking to of their most egregious error. He says, God was at work through Jesus, and yet you handed him over, put him to death, nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. 
and exalted him to the right hand of God. And then he repeats this accusation in verse 36. He says, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When he finished giving his sermon, which again takes up that last half of chapter 2, the people, they, they turn to each other and they ask him, they say, well, what should we do? He says, repent. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, preached more sermons on the text, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, than any other scripture in all of Bible, in the entire Bible. People seem to be really turned off by that little word, repent. It scares us. But it's the basic requirement for entrance into the kingdom. Notice how we asked it of both Nick and Grant as they joined the church today. What is repentance? We seem to think it's for everybody except us, right? But for those first believers, it was simply this. Just changing their mind. Realizing their error. Accepting the one that they'd once condemned. Becoming what they'd once ridiculed. Receiving Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Rejecting the evil powers of this world. That is repentance. And it hadn't changed over the last 2,000 years. It's by this act that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit today. Through unity, through prayer, through repentance, we can harness the power of the Holy Spirit and keep the fire burning. So let me ask you again. Are you Pentecostal? I sure hope we are. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Holy and loving God, Lord, when we couldn't do it by ourselves, you sent us an advocate, the Holy Spirit, to give us power, and wisdom, and strength, to teach us, to guide us, even to convict us when we were doing wrong. Lord God, I pray that that fire continues to burn and that the Spirit will move throughout this church and this community over this entire world. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.